I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com It's the stuff of fairy tales, all witches and pinpricks and poisoned apples. The sort of story you might tell your children as you put them to bed. A fable about people falling asleep for months, maybe years on end. But what if, the next morning, your own children wouldn't wake up? In a child's bed was a ten-year-old girl in a little pink dress and little black and white harlequin tights. She really looked healthy at first glance. She had black glossy hair that was spread out in her pillow, like a sort of halo around her head. And she really looked very much as if she was asleep. What began as a puzzling phenomenon in Sweden is now spreading to other countries. Scientists are stumped. How do you treat the children who just won't wake up? And what does it feel like to sleep for months, to experience what they're now calling resignation syndrome? He said it was like being in a glass box under the sea and you had the sense that the sea was pushing in on you and that you were just fighting to keep it out. It's a modern medical conundrum. But could the cure depend on something as simple as hope? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the children who won't wake up. In my job as a neurologist, I see a lot of people who have psychologically driven comas. So people who lose consciousness and have seizures for psychological reasons rather than because they have brain disease. That's Suzanne O'Sullivan. She's a consultant neurologist and neurophysiologist based at the National Hospital for Neurology in London. So when it comes to all things neuroscience, she's a bit of an expert. And because I'm interested in that, you know, I'm often drawn to things in the press that are related in some way to that. In 2017, I saw a news headline entitled Sweden's Mystery Illness. And it told the story of a couple of little girls who were in a comatose state for months, even though their brains appeared to be healthy. And this was a condition that was referred to in the article as resignation syndrome. Now, I see people with these sorts of disorders all the time, and I'd never heard of resignation syndrome. It was completely new to me. And I quickly learned that was because it was exclusive to Sweden. It didn't happen anywhere else in the world. The children were a little like some of my patients, but different also because my patients lose consciousness for a few minutes. But these children lost consciousness for months and some even for years. So it was very startling. 
Having read about this mysterious new illness, Suzanne was intrigued. What could be causing the condition? What would make children fall asleep for months? I'm fully aware that the mind has the ability to sort of play tricks on us. You know, that what's going on in our unconscious brain is much more than what's going on in our conscious brain. So I know that we can get weird physical symptoms purely through psychological mechanisms, but I'd never seen anything as profound as what was happening to these children. So I contacted a doctor in Sweden who was looking after them and I asked if I could visit. And what I really wanted to do was try and you know, understand a little more of what was happening to them so that I could get a little more insight into what's happening to my patients. And tell me about going to visit some of these children. I knew that I was going to see small children who had been bedbound for quite a long period of time. But when I was actually faced with it, when I had to walk into the room to see some of these children, I found it terribly upsetting. Their home was in a beautiful area in Sweden. You know, it was a very sunny day. There was a lovely leafy playground outside their apartment block. But whilst all was sunny and tranquil outside, Suzanne felt a chill as she was taken in to see the children. I was led into this bedroom with the curtains pulled at midday and there were just two tiny little girls just lying in bed and they didn't acknowledge me at all when I walked into the room. And that was when the reality of their situation hit me more than it had when I read about them. You know, when I read about them, I I think I almost intellectualized what I saw. And when I walked into the room and I was suddenly hit with the actual reality of it, it, it was terribly upsetting. And I remember that my first reaction really was to want to start crying, which, you know, just felt so inappropriate because these young children, one of them was 10 years old and she had been motionless and unresponsive for a year and a half. The other was an 11-year-old and she had been in this condition for about six months. Um, They came from a family seeking asylum in Sweden. So there were people who'd fled Syria. They'd made a very dangerous journey to get to Sweden and they were facing asylum refusal and deportation. So when I walked into their room and I suddenly felt myself becoming overwhelmed with upset, I just thought, oh no, because it, it felt so wrong because they had been through so much and I had come from such comfort to walk into this situation. So I really felt the need to kind of suppress how I was feeling because you know, these people were so strong and I met their parents and they were so positive and welcoming. And I suddenly had the sense that they would need to comfort me and it all seemed the wrong way around. Talk us through it. Take us with you into that room. What were you seeing? It was very dark and that was my first thing that really struck me was, you know, it was so bright and leafy and pleasant outside and so dark inside. And the doctor who was with me, who had facilitated my visit, she immediately had the same impulse as me, which was throw the curtains open and let these children into daylight because they needed to have a sense of what day and night was to have any chance of recovery. On my right in a child's bed was a 10-year-old girl and I've changed her name, but I call her Nola. And she was lying on top of her bed covers in a little pink dress and little black and white harlequin tights. She really looked healthy at first glance. You know, she had black glossy hair that was spread out in her pillow, like a sort of halo around her head. And she really looked very much as if she was asleep, except, of course, that she had a nasogastric tube, a tube 
threaded into her nose, which is what her family used to feed her to keep her healthy. She was just breathing very gently. And when we walked into the room and there were five of us, her parents, the doctor who was accompanying me, her husband who who helps her support the children and their family dog. So all these people walked into her room and she didn't move a muscle or show any acknowledgement at all. That was when I started feeling really upset because that was the moment when I realized how deep this kind of level of unawareness was for her. And then in another bed nearby was her 11-year-old sister. Now, the first girl, Nola, who was only 10, had been in this condition for a year and a half. But the 11-year-old sister had only been affected for a few months. So she was in a much earlier stage. And this condition, resignation syndrome, makes people withdraw very slowly. So the other little girl, again, I've changed her name, but I'm calling her Helan. And Helan was much more awake than Nola. So I was really surprised when I looked over at her and she opened her eyes and looked at me and then her eyes just sort of fluttered closed again. And that was very distressing too because she was almost like a child fighting to wake up. You know, that sort of feeling you have in the morning when you're sort of... Trying to open your eyes. Trying to wake up, but you're not quite there yet. And that's very much how she seemed, which in a sense was almost more distressing because you could see that she knew what was happening. Whereas Nola had much more of a peaceful look because you had the sense she didn't know what was happening. And this will sound like a a ridiculous question, but what was wrong with them? This condition was first really referred to as apathy because what happens to the children is they just become less responsive. They don't play as much with other children. They start interacting less. Then they start getting out of bed with difficulty in the morning and, and this really creeps up in them. Apathy is a perfect word for it a real sort of loss of initiative to do anything until they get to the point where they don't get out of bed at all. And that gradually evolves into not talking, not eating, not doing anything at all, not even opening their eyes. This condition was first observed in the 1990s, but became a more noticeable trend in the early 2000s. And it primarily seemed to affect children who were seeking asylum in Sweden, and many of which had come from very specific ethnic groups like the Yazidi or the Uyghurs, you know, minority groups that had suffered a lot of trauma. And there seems to be a common trigger. It's when the children are faced with deportation that the symptoms seem to begin. So the Swedish doctors didn't have a name for it when it started because it was completely unprecedented. Nothing like this had had ever happened in the world before. So they began by calling it apathy and then they change it to a Swedish word I couldn't possibly say which means to give up and in English the Swedish word give up then translated into resignation syndrome I suppose suggesting that they just had become resigned to a particular fate Whilst falling asleep for months is a highly unusual state and it's hard to imagine how the condition must feel the process itself of the mind shutting down and stepping back from the world around you is actually quite common. In fact, you've probably experienced it. We all have this a little bit in our daily life. There's a thing called dissociation. So it's something everyone has experienced, some people more than others. Mm. So dissociation is that moment when you're way overloaded with information or you've got something on your mind that you just can't stop thinking about or you're just very stressed or there's too much going on and your brain just shuts down for a few seconds. Sort of zoning out. Exactly. Or it could be, you know, when you read a page of a book 
and you get to the bottom of a page of a book and you realize you have not taken in a single word of that page or you're listening for a particular point of a news broadcast and it escapes you. That's dissociation and it's normal. It's sort of a protective mechanism that we can't deal with all the information that's bombarding us. So our brain has lots of unconscious mechanisms to protect us against overload and to make sure that we can concentrate on important things. But everything in our body goes wrong. You know, your hair, some people have too much hair, too little hair. Every single bit of our body, our skin, every organ goes wrong. And these sort of unconscious mechanisms that are there to help us to cope with a a sort of difficult world, they go wrong too. And when dissociation goes wrong, instead of protecting us, it can cause symptoms, it can cause blackouts and loss of consciousness and things. Now, I think dissociation probably has something to do with what's happening to the resignation syndrome children. I'm not sure it explains it all because mostly dissociation is much more fleeting You know, I would see patients who have seizures and blackouts, but they're usually momentary. They're not usually lasting days or weeks or months or even years. But certainly in response to trauma, it seems likely that these children's brains have learned this coping mechanism and that they produce it when certain triggers occur. And so, I mean, what do we know about the conditions so far? Is it only in Sweden? And, you know, you said some people can do it for months and years. What is the longest case we know of? How long has somebody stayed in that state? It affects children between the age of 7 and 19. And it typically lasts for, you know, months or a couple of years. I met some children who were slightly older at the Nolan Elan, and they were in their sort of mid-teens. And they had been in this condition for three to four years and is usually resolved once the children's hope in, you know, a future is restored, is really the cure for it. When this started happening, the medical doctors did what medical doctors do, what I do all the time, which is they investigated these children extensively with brain scans and blood tests. They were admitted to hospitals. What did they find? What they found really was that the brains of the children were healthy. So you would expect if someone was completely unresponsive and not moving, Mm. that if you did tests to look at their responsiveness levels, um, like an EEG test or an electroencephalography, you might expect that you would see a sort of coma-like pattern in their brain waves. But when they look at their brain waves, they just see the same sleeping and waking patterns that you and I would have. So everything about these children's brains looks healthy, but clearly what's happening to them is not normal. So they were able to really say from all of those tests that they didn't have a brain disease causing this. There wasn't some toxin or poison or genetic disorder causing it because despite the unresponsive state, their brains showed evidence of being normally awake. And there were obviously inevitable accusations that the children were pretending because that happens. What did you make of that? Because you're right, a lot of people will think these are people who are seeking asylum, they're losing hope, they think they're mm-hmm. going to be turned back, you know, none of the tests show anything is wrong and suddenly mm-hmm. they go to sleep and don't wake up. As a doctor, how were you sure that that wasn't what was happening, that they weren't faking it? I'm in part sure because I've seen these sort of disorders so often before. You know, I can see from the behavior of people that these are not manufactured disorders. But for those who need convincing of that, I mean, in the early stages, 
children were admitted to hospital. Some were admitted to intensive care units. Some were admitted to psychiatric wards if, if they were more confident that it had a psychological cause. And even under prolonged observation and even under prolonged investigation, the children were completely unrousable. It really is against anything willful or normal for a child to be able to sustain that mm. sort of behaviour under prolonged observation. Over such a long period. When you go to a doctor and you submit to testing and you are able to demonstrate your symptoms in front of a doctor, you're very much someone who is looking for help, not someone who's trying to pretend to be sick. You see a really different pattern on the brain scan of someone who you say, please pretend to be paralyzed. And then you do a scan on someone with a psychosomatic paralysis, different parts of the brain light up, which help us to know that People who have psychosomatic symptoms are not pretending, yeah. The cases of resignation syndrome that have been medically diagnosed have so far only affected a particular sliver of society. For a very long time, this only happened in Sweden. It exclusively affected children coming from asylum-seeking families who were facing deportation. And it was even more selective than that. It doesn't affect any asylum-seeking family. It was mostly children who came from certain minority ethnic groups and also from previous um, Soviet republics. However, after I visited Sweden in 2018, it began to spread around the world. And some cases were reported in Nauru, which is an, an island for immigrants off Australia. Still in very similar victims or, you know, children seeking asylum. It also, there have also been a few cases in immigration camps in Greece, but it still remains much more commonly a problem of Sweden. In a moment, we'll find out what it feels like to fall asleep for months and not be able to wake yourself up. For more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Resignation syndrome is still a mystery that medics can't quite explain. Tests carried out on children who are suffering from the condition show that it's not like a coma. Their brains do still respond to some external stimuli, but it's not quite like sleep either. One young boy who'd experienced it 
described how it felt. He said it was like being in a glass box under the sea and you had the sense that the sea was pushing in on you and that you were just fighting to keep it out, which is obviously a terrifying, terrifying description, especially yeah. if you think that it lasts a long time. Although another child described it as being like in a dream that you can't wake up from. And it, it when she described it, it, it sounded like a slightly more positive description. But it, I just don't think that coma or sleep really captures what it is. It's quite a unique phenomenon that really has defied words, I would say. Do we know how it happens? I mean, do they just suddenly one day not wake up and that's it? It's a very gradual withdrawal that happens, which is probably part a clue to sort of what's going on in the brain when this happens. I mean, this is pure speculation because nobody can know for sure. But the fact that this cluster is so clearly in a particular cultural group suggests that this is something that has been placed as an expectation amongst the children in this group. And I I want to emphasize that when I say an expectation, I'm talking about an unconsciously planted expectation, not anything conscious. So if you think about it, we're all learning from our environment all the time. Now, a child who's facing deportation will be aware that there's stress within the family. And it's important to note that these children... They're often the conduit between their families and Swedish authorities and other people in Sweden because the children come to Sweden very young. They speak Swedish and often their parents don't learn Swedish so easily. So the children know what's happening even when they're very young. Well, what happens when you're facing deportation is you'll get anxiety symptoms. Anxiety is felt in the body. So if we think of any, any emotion at all, happiness, fear, sadness, anxiety, that comes with a physical sensation. We we embody our emotions, our bodies are the mouthpieces of our minds. So a child facing deportation would be expected to experience some physical symptoms. They might be expected to feel anxious butterflies in their stomach or palpitations or headaches or what whatever their specific set of symptoms might be. Now, if they have through sort of cultural learning, come to believe that when you get these sort of symptoms and you're facing deportation, that one can gradually withdraw and um, become overwhelmed with apathy. It may be that they feel the first physical change and that they inadvertently act out this sort of pre-programmed expectation that has been placed into their minds through their cultural environment. It may just be that their brains are overwhelming them with an expectation that they have been given inadvertently. So I think that that's related to what's happening to them. And when they do, when these children are falling into this state, sometimes for years, and they're mm-hmm. at home, how are their parents keeping them alive? You know, this, this is the stuff of fairy tales, sort of sleeping beauty. All the children I met were cared for at home. In the early stages of this, they were brought into hospital, but now they are routinely, I think, cared for at home. They have a nasogastric tube, so a tube going through the nose into the stomach, and the families feed them with a liquid diet, so that keeps them well nourished. The families are also taught to do physiotherapy. So when somebody's lying in a single position for a long time, you really have to make sure that you're keeping their joints mobile and their skin healthy. You can very easily develop pressure sores and wasted muscles if you're lying in a single position all the time. 
So the families do physiotherapy. They move the children's joints around. When I was with Nola and Helan, the, their mother brushed their skin with a brush just to try and keep them in sensory contact with the world, to give them a sensory experience, mm. to try and keep them connected as much as possible. And the families also do things like they try and include them in family life. So they will put them in wheelchairs and sit them at the dinner table, try and put, you know, tempting bits of food in their mouth as safely as possible, just to try and sort of encourage them to remember what it's like to eat and to encourage them to remember that they are part of a family and that there's things happening around them. So they try as much as possible to recreate some semblance of night and day for the children, some semblance of interaction with the family and they do everything that they're advised to by the doctors to keep their skin and their health and their limbs healthy. And they do, you know, children do recover. And when they recover, they seem to make a good physical recovery. Now, not instantaneous. So you can imagine if someone's been immobile for a year and a half, that you're not going to be able to walk very easily when they get out of bed. So they, they get better very, very slowly. And, you know, it can it can be as slow to recover as it was to get, you enter the condition. But they do. It is possible for them to make a good physical recovery. And what triggers that? What triggers them to come out of this state? What's the solution? Well, the solution really is to offer the children hope. This is a condition which is very much triggered by the threat of deportation from Sweden. I believe that when they've face deportation, that they get the physical anxiety symptoms that you or I would get, and that triggers the start of this process. Mm. And the restoration of hope is what triggers the recovery. So offering the children asylum will almost guarantee recovery. Really? Yeah, they do recover once they have hope restored. I mean, this is a condition where the children's hope has been absolutely threatened and then dashed multiple times because the asylum process in Sweden, which is actually probably much, you know, much more pleasant experience than in other countries, is a three-stage process where they are first apply for asylum and have it denied. And then they given another opportunity to apply and deny. And then another opportunity to apply and deny. So you've got this roller coaster of, you know, what's going to happen, uncertainty and dashed hopes. When the children's hope of security is restored, they do begin to recover, but extremely slowly. I don't want anyone to think that, you know, this is a condition where you can just get out of bed and get better again. You need to believe that you're safe to get better again. And it's so interesting to hear you, you know, as a neurologist, sort of prescribing as the solution to this hope. <laughs> I think we live in a world where it's much easier to talk about biology and what's happening inside the brains of children in the, these sort of circumstances. But we don't have exactly the same amount of respect for or urgent need for response to social problems because there are children all over the world, you know, facing similar sort of circumstances to these children. There's lots of forced immigrants, but we're able to quite casually bypass that. But if we biologize a condition we're much more likely to give it attention. Um, so it kind of raised for me awkward, a feeling of uncomfortableness really about, you know, the doctors who are looking after these children, they have no control over the asylum process. So they were speculating about further brain scans and further medical tests. Well, that just seemed like, 
you know, medical tests aren't going to solve this problem. That's how it felt to me. And I felt uncomfortable that people couldn't just say that out loud, that we had to biologize. And I felt mm. uncomfortable about that for my own patients. These children's problems seem to be very clear. But I believe in the UK with my own patients that sometimes expressing your distress through biological symptoms is a more efficient way of asking for and getting help. Yeah. And I think that happens to my patients. And I think it's distressing that they can't be more explicit about their needs and that it has to be expressed in this way. And what's happened to the girls who you visited? How are they now? I stay in touch with the doctor who facilitated my visit and she gives me updates on the girls. Uh, I'm happy to say that both Nola and Talan are significantly better than when I saw them. Oh, great. They haven't yet been offered asylum, but they have been given permission to stay in Sweden, at least for the foreseeable future. And they have made big improvements, but not a full recovery. So in Alain's case, she's back in school. She's the old girl who was 11 and she'd only been in it for six months when I met her. And she's come out of it to the point that she's able to go to school and interact fairly normally. Nola, who was in it for a year and a half, has improved considerably. So she's now up walking around. She can interact. However, she doesn't talk. So I met her two years ago and she's at the point now where she can go to school, but she doesn't speak. So clearly she has some significant recovering yet to do, but it's looking very hopeful for these two particular girls at least. And with that, I mean, presumably there are doctors who will be sort of monitoring their progress, but you know, does it become a, a psychological problem? Does it become a psychologist mm -hmm. who sort of deals with, you know, Nola in particular who isn't talking? That's a question that really needs to be answered, and I don't think there's any adequate answers to it yet. They are um, seen by psychologists and psychiatrists, and what's clear is that they make a good physical recovery, at least. There's not much information out there at this point because there hasn't been any extensive studying done on this as to the possible psychological after effects. I'd have to say that I would have grave concerns that there will be some significant psychological after effects. Because when you're 10 years old, your brain isn't formed. And that's when you're learning to socialize. That's when you're learning to sort of understand the world around you. That's when you're learning to yeah. emotionally mature, etc. And these children are missing out on a big old chunk of that. Now, hopefully if they wake up as Nola did, you know, still a young child. She still has, I mean, our brains don't fully mature until we're in our mid-twenties. So she still has 10 years to catch up. So I wouldn't rule out the hope of a full recovery. However, on a slightly more positive note, you know, I do know that there are children who've recovered who are now living very successful lives. They've gone to mm. university and they're doing professional jobs. So there are children who were affected a long time ago who seem to have shook this off. So hopefully there won't be any very serious long-term effects, but I'm sure that in some children there will be. Whilst writing her latest book, Sleeping Beauties, Suzanne visited a number of communities around the world that have been affected by resignation syndrome and other similar conditions. What realised as I was listening to different group stories, because it seemed to be a recurring theme that when faced with these terrible, difficult situations, that these physical symptoms come along. I used to think of it as a sort of these things as a medical problem that needed to be solved. So I think, because I'm a doctor, that... Try to treat the symptoms. 
Exactly. And also just meet everything head on as well. You know, that my job would be to point out to these people that the symptoms are psychological and to try and psychologize them better. But what I came to realize actually is that these processes are actually probably not so much an illness always, but actually a very important process that we have to go through to solve problems sometimes. So it's sort of almost like a physical manifestation of almost a stage of grief or a stage of separation or... Exactly that, because like, you know, when you're trying to make one of those awful decisions, like I need to leave this job, but I'm afraid if I leave this job, I won't get another, you know, and then you say to yourself, well, I'll make a pros and cons list. Mm. And if the pros are longer than the cons, I'll leave the job. But then you find out that actually the pros aren't longer, but you still want to leave the job. We'd like to think we can think through problems in this really logical way and make a sensible decision and then we'll make that decision and then we'll carry it out. But I don't think it's as easy as that. I think that some problems are very hard to think through in that logical way Mm. and that sometimes these symptoms come along to help us work through our problems. And therefore, as a doctor, it's not necessarily beneficial for me to try and point out to that person what I think their symptoms are caused by. I need them to give me their theory And it may be that working with their theory is what's going to make them better. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, consultant neurologist and neurophysiologist Suzanne O'Sullivan. You can read more about resignation syndrome and other stories in Suzanne's new book, The Sleeping Beauties, and in an article she wrote for the Sunday Times magazine. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If there's a story that you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do get in touch. You can send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.